0: Hey, a lot going on. Let's give this over to the Lord one more time. Lord, just good to be here this morning to um, hear your word being taught. That's what we want to do let's let your spirit teach and we listen, Lord, go before this in all ways and all things and help us to truly live it and apply it. We do ask for your blessing upon Garage Sale Giveaway that would be an outreach for you this week and for those down in Mexico, physical safety and, Lord, just ministry opportunities to really represent you in your name. Amen. Galatians chapter 3. Now if you've been with us in our study in Galatians, this is kind of how the book breaks down. The first two chapters of Galatians, Paul is kind of recounting his testimony. how He came to know Christ and what his first few years with Jesus was like. Galatians 3 and 4 then are chapters on theology then Galatians 5 and 6 take this and make practical application of it. Galatians 5 and 6 has some of the best practical application you will see in the Bible. And I'm really looking forward to getting into that. So what we've done is we've been introduced to Paul and his conversion and how he got saved in chapters 1 and 2. And now he's going to deal in chapters 3 and 4 with some of the problems the church was having in the church of Galatia. Now this is what was going on. You've got to put yourself in the mindset of 2,000 years ago. Here's this idea of Christianity, Christ, the cross... That they're now followers of Jesus. And what happened was a lot of people looked at Christianity as an offshoot of Judaism. Obviously, Jesus was Jewish. Most of the first believers were Jewish. So as time is kind of progressing, there was this idea of Christianity and Jesus was the Messiah. As years passed, some people said, hey, you want to keep Jesus as the Messiah? That's fine. That's great. You keep Jesus as the Messiah, but... Make sure you're still following all those rules of the law. So you want to follow Jesus, that's great. He had some good points. But also make sure you're doing Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy as well. So as this is progressing, they became known as Judaizers. That they would come in and sneak into the church and say, don't forget, you got to follow all these rules. Paul is writing this book to the church of Galatia to say, what are you guys doing? You started out so good. You started out with just Jesus. And now as time has progressed, you're bringing in other things that you feel like you have to do to earn salvation or to make sure you're saved. And he says no. And this is what he's going to do in chapters 3 and 4. He's going to spend two chapters saying it's about Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's the focus here. This is the theology of what we're going to get into. Take a look at this. Galatians 3, verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Foolish Galatians. Foolish, that's an interesting word. There's a couple different words in the Bible to denote your mental capacity. And the one here is this. This is, means you know it, but you're choosing not to live it. There's another word where you don't get it. You don't understand it, and it doesn't make any sense to you. That's not what this word is saying. This word is saying is you get it. You understand the concepts. You understand what I'm trying to say, but you're choosing not to live it. It's the same word used in verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? These are people that know the truth and choose just not to live the truth. It's a pretty strong word. In fact, if you look in the Bible, the word fool is one of the strongest words you could use to put somebody down. In fact, Proverbs goes to the ultimate level and says the fool says in his heart that there is no God. Now, if we look at the word fool today, we don't really look at that as that type of insulting. Well, that was foolish or that person's a fool. From a biblical standpoint, this is one of the worst things you could call somebody. Because what you're basically saying is you're smart enough to get it, you're smart enough to know it, but you're dumb enough to do nothing about it. And this is what we see today happening in the body of Christ. Is we see people that know the truth, that could quote the truth. They've marked the verses of the truth. They even got it underlined. They maybe even memorized it. But they choose not to go out and live it. And Paul is saying you're foolish. See, this word is used also in many different other applications in the New Testament. Jesus used it in Luke 24 to say to know the truth but then not to believe it. That you can quote that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You understand that he was crucified. You understand the grave was empty three days later. But yet you choose not to believe it. In 1 Timothy 6, you're foolish, the Bible says, if you make your whole goal in life. Money, jobs, financial security. That's foolish. According to Titus 3, you're foolish if you choose to follow your own lust, your own pleasure. Or the other route, you're foolish if you choose to let your life be full of hate and envy. God is saying, you know better than this. You know you're supposed to forgive them. You know you're supposed to let it go. You know you're not supposed to fulfill the flesh. You know you're not supposed to chase after the world, but you still do it. That's foolish. Please understand the severity of this world." word. When he was using this word to the Galatians, that would have got their attention. You guys know better. What has happened? They have been bewitched. Literally means cast an evil spell. Kind of an interesting word right there, this idea of casting an evil spell. It means literally that an evil eye has gotten them. Somebody's fooled them. Somebody has brought in this false teaching, and they have accepted it. Oh, man, it always kind of concerns me when you see somebody who is walking pretty strong in the Lord for a while, and then all of a sudden some of these weird ideas come in. And the next thing you know, you start talking to them, you see them being bewitched. You see them allowing these little points to come in that shouldn't come in. And next thing you know, they start repeating some stuff. It's like, where are you getting this from? You're not following the truth of the scripture. Because what he wants us to really do, it says right here, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth. Now, if you have NIV or New Living Translation, there's some um, translation issues with that, where some of them don't have the word obey in it. But the point is, if we're supposed to take this truth, we're supposed to obey it. We're supposed to walk it. We're supposed to be obedient to it. Okay, now guys, here's the problem that we run into. We call ourselves Christians. Just think about what that word means. Christian. It has the word Christ in it. So we're following Christ. So if we're following Christ, the Bible says this, that the whole book is written about him. So therefore, as a Christian, I'm following the teachings of Christ. He's the one that said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's the one that has laid down this groundwork. So when I run into somebody who claims to be a Christian, and they call themselves a Christian, and their lifestyle does not match it up, we have to step back for a second and say, well, wait a second. What type of Christian are you? Because a Christian means follower of Christ. And there's supposed to be a walk that goes with this. There's supposed to be an obedience that goes with this. Now, please make this a point abundantly clear. This is not obedience that saves you. This is because I am saved, I choose to live and act differently. And the longer I walk with the Lord, and the more I read from Genesis to Revelation, the more I understand we as believers are going to be really, really weird. We're going to be so strange to the world. We're not going to get the cultural references. We're not going to watch the same same shows. We're not going to dress that way. We're not going to talk that way. But the problem is when you look at the typical church, they dress like the world, they talk like the world, they act like the world. So what exactly are we following? Because we're supposed to be following Christ. And even that term following, it's got a really strange connotation in the world today, doesn't it? I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. I don't do any of that type of stuff. But I sometimes get points from that. You know, somebody has referenced something, they've sent me something, so I go click on it. And it just fascinates me, that concept of you have followers. Have you ever thought about that? Somebody breaks how many followers they have. And then when it goes to some of the times of social media, it's how many likes can I get? How much is people? And it's like that's the world we live in. We have become such a selfish, narcissistic society that we base our existence off how many people like something, how many people follow us, When really it's supposed to be obeying Jesus Christ and following him. And this is why Galatians is a tough book. Because Galatians is telling us repeatedly we're supposed to be crucified to ourselves. And it's those three words we keep using every week. Die, deny, disappear. We're supposed to die to who we are. Deny ourselves. And I'm supposed to disappear and it becomes all Christ. And I'm just supposed to obey him and obey the truth. Now we need to talk about truth for a little bit. Can you go with me to John chapter 8 please? Truth. In this world we live in, the concept of truth is very subjective. Just think about that for a second. The idea of truth depends on who you ask and who you talk to. Well, then how can it be truth? Pilate himself even asked Jesus, what is truth? Now, there's three truths. You hear me mention this a lot. The Bible says that God's word is truth, the Holy Spirit is truth, and Jesus is truth. Those are the three truths. The Holy Spirit is truth, God's word is truth, Jesus is truth. So therefore, when it comes to presenting truth in this world, it has to line up with scripture, it has to be led by the Holy Spirit, and it has to line up with the nature of Jesus. If it does not line up with those three things, it is not truth. Please don't take this statement the wrong way. No one in this world needs your opinion. They need the truth. So you give them the truth of God's word, you give them the truth of the Holy Spirit, and you give them the truth of Jesus. Keep your opinions out of it. It always concerns me when somebody says, well, I've really thought about this and I want to know if you've prayed about it. I want to know if you've sought the scriptures about it. I want to know if you've sought the Lord about it. Because I know what I think sometimes. And I know what I've convinced myself sometimes. Jeremiah tells me that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? I alone, says the Lord, knows the heart. I can even convince myself into stuff that's not good. So I want the truth of the word, the truth of the Holy Spirit, and the truth of Jesus. And then I want to obey that. So taking these points now, let's look what Jesus says about truth. John 8, start in verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There you go. If you truly, if you truly want to know the Lord, you will abide in God's word. Verse 31, and you are his disciple. So often, I have people come up to me and start asking, well, How do I know if I'm really saved? I mean, I, I mean, I think I've accepted Christ as my Savior. I mean, I'm trying to live, but how do I really know? And we, and we can go into more detail with that. You know, 1 John is a whole book written to make sure you can have assurance of salvation. But there's little tests that the Lord gives us. Here in verse 31 Do you abide in God's word? What does it mean to abide in God's word? It means that's what you choose to let lead your life. Now, this is not a buffet, folks. This is not choose what I want to out of God's word. Do you believe Genesis to Revelation? And do you say, this is what I'm going to live my life on? I'm abiding God's word. If that's the truth of it, verse 31, you are his disciple. See, disciple means follower of a teacher. You're a disciple of Christ. You are following that. As we mentioned earlier, you're not following other things. You're not following this world. And if you truly want to follow Christ, let me repeat this point. It's going to get weird. It's going to get so strange to the world. Think about this. Think of how many times the Bible's told us that God has called us out of this world. He's called us out. He uses terms like we're sojourners, foreigners, aliens. It comes a point when the world looks at us, they should say that person is different. So different. But the problem is, We have lowered the bar so low at what an on-fire Christian looks like that if you just show up to church and you do some devotions, man, you're crazy for Christ. What would happen if we'd stop and really said no? What does it really look like to follow him? What does it really look like in verse 31 to abide in God's word? What does it really look like in verse 32? To know the truth. To know it. Not just repeat it, Not just mark it, not just underline, but I mean to really know it. And then in verse 32, to be set free. Free from what? What are we set free from when we're a follower of Christ? First off, you're set free from sin. Romans 6 makes it clear that you're dead to sin. And you can't tempt a dead man. So that idea of I have died to that sin, I am set free from that. What else are you set free from? How about the expectations of the world? you ever thought about that, how much that controls you? How many times have you said to your spouse this week, to your kids this week, or to your friends this week, well, you know, I have to go do this. Did you ever stop and think why you have to go do that? I mean, do you really have to? Some things you have to do. I get that. But a lot of things that we plan, do we really have to go do? There is an expectation that the world puts on us that we really need to stop and say, Lord. Wait a second. If I'm truly a follower of you, the Bible says that I'm a bond servant of you. I'm a slave to Christ. Why would I do anything without checking with my master? I did a hospital visit this week on the back of one of the SUVs. There's a little sticker, and I can't remember the exact quote. It said, my kids are in sports. I have no life. Now, some of you can relate to that, the practices, the times, the etc. How often do we get involved in something in life that we have to do? We have to go to this engagement. We have to go to this party. I have to finish this project. I have to do this. Yes, once again, some things we need to get done. But there's a lot of things in life that we don't need to do. And why do we do it? Because there's a social expectation that we need to do this. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. Remember when Jesus was at the wedding, and they ran out of wine, and they came up to Jesus, and Mary did and said, Do something. And Jesus' great response, Woman, Try that with your mom one time. Just try it one time. That's all I'm saying. And you can make it biblical. Woman. Now, he went ahead and did it. Now, he went and did it because it was the right thing to do. But he was not going to be pushed or pressured into anything. There's another example in the book of John where it says his brother said, Are you going to go to the feast with us? Jesus said, No, I'm not going to go with you guys. Then a few verses later, it says Jesus went up to the feast. He went on his time. He went on his plan. He went on the world, not what the world wanted him to do. And I just see so often in the body of Christ, we allow the expectations of the world to force us to push us into something. And then we sit here and say, I don't have any time. I am just so busy. There's just so much going on. Are we busy about the Lord's business? Are we busy about what we feel we should do? We can be set free from those expectations. We can be set free from sin. We can be set free from that burden. And really, when you start to realize being set free from what the world expects out of you, you're set free from yourself. The selfish, narcissistic, it's all about me. You're set free from that, and now you are. Verse 33, they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? These are the Jews saying, how can you say that we are enslaved? We're not enslaved, we're free. Have you ever talked to a non-believer and the nonsense that is coming out of their mouth they so firmly, truly believe and you listen to it and you say this is utter nonsense. I I love astronomy. I, I love going out at night and looking at the moon and the stars and I think of that passage all the time of the heavens declare the majesty of God. I was watching this astronomy video not too long ago and what it was talking about was just life on other planets and how all this information we've sent out probes etc and have not found anything that we can verify life on other planets and they were talking about what's scarier that we'd actually find aliens and then dealing with it or what was scarier is if we actually find out that we're alone and there is no other life and they determined the scariest thing was that that we were just alone ourselves and i started thinking about that wait a second hasn't isaiah told us that three thousand years ago that earth was a unique creation Didn't Isaiah tell us that earth was God's picture that he gave to us? That's nonsense coming out of the world, but yet they think it's truth. So I look at this verse right here. We are Abraham's descendants and had never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Okay, let's just do a quick history of uh, Israel, okay? Obviously, they're never in bondage in Egypt. I don't know what Moses did there. Uh, They were never in bondage to the Philistines in the book of Judges. They were never in bondage to Assyria and kings or then Babylon. And then after Babylon, they were never in bondage to the Medes, to the Persians, to the Greeks, and then to Rome. Obviously, at this time, 2,000 years ago, they were a free country under Rome. This is such utter nonsense that it doesn't even make sense. Please remember, please remember, when you are witnessing and representing Christ to the unsaved world, they are going to say things that they so truly believe, and you're going to sit there and scratch your head and say, What? They don't get it. Have patience with them. Have love with them and keep speaking truth. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. See, you've been a slave to sin, and Jesus says, I want to set you free, and now you're a son of God. That's amazing. But the problem is verse 34 whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Have you ever seen somebody be a slave of sin? It's an awful thing, and the thing is, they think they're free. It's the drunk that calls me up and says I could stop anytime I want. No, you can't. You're a slave to sin. You know, it's the guy that's looking at things online he shouldn't. It says, "Oh, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't affect my marriage." Yeah, it does. You're a slave to sin. You're a slave to bitterness. You're a slave to anger. You're a slave to wrath. It's a slave to sin. And so what Jesus is trying to come right here and say, listen, I'm going to set you free by you becoming a child of God. So now, this idea of truth, but you've got to go back to verses 31 and 32 and know the truth First, The truth is what sets you free. Now that we know truth, what's going to happen? Verse 37. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Look at verse 37. But you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Do you realize, believers, when you go out into the world to represent Christ, they will hate you. Now, we don't deal with that a lot where we live but I'm telling you right now, in a lot of places in this world, it is a scary, dangerous thing to be a Christian. We are desensitized to that. There's churches every few miles. People are openly talking about the Lord. We look at this verse 37 and realize, no, I, I, I don't know if I really know what it's like to say to, from somebody who says, I want to kill you for representing the truth. Verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to him, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you what? The truth. Which I heard from God, Abraham did not do this. When you go out there to represent truth to this world, you will be hated, you will be disliked. See, the problem is the world has this closet and they've locked it up. They put all that junk in there and they don't want no one to see it. Listen, I I won't dig into you, you don't dig into me, and let's just pretend we're all great happy people and we'll show up on Sunday morning and we'll fake it. Truth is, I'm going to go unlock that closet door, I'm going to flip the light on, and I love you enough to get all this junk out of your closet. No, don't don't do that. In fact, I will hate you for digging into my life. How dare you come into my life? No, I come into your life in love to speak truth because the actions you're doing right now are not godly And I go back to what it says in verse 31. If you say you're a disciple of Christ and God's word abides in you, why are we doing these things? Verse 41, you do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Do you think verse 41 was a little bit of an attack towards Jesus? Hey, we know your story. The whole virgin birth. We know the whole background about who you think you are, Jesus. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father... He would love me, for I proceed forth and come from God, nor have I come on myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. Here's two more little tests for you. You want to know if you're a believer? Verse 42, do you love God and love Jesus? Because a true believer does. Verse 43, do you understand and listen to him? Because a true believer does. Verse 44 you have your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Boy, verse 44 is a great witnessing tool. Use that the next time you go out. You are of your father the devil. That's the words of Jesus right there. Gets their attention, doesn't it? What is Jesus saying? Quit saying you're on the same page of God when your words, your life, and your actions do not line up with it. That's the truth. And the problem is, we've kind of become so accepting. The truth is this. If someone claims to be a believer, God's word abides in them. They love the Father. They love Jesus. And they listen. Jump ahead to verse 47. He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. We don't like to hear these type of passages. I don't want to hear about you or your father, the devil. He's a murderer. He's a liar. But the truth is, some people don't want to hear truth, verse 45. Because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? The world doesn't want to hear it. And so when jumping back now to Galatians chapter 3, when Paul is writing in Galatians, the importance of us obeying the truth. Please understand how serious of a passage that is. Please understand as a believer what it means to truly obey. Please understand as a believer what it truly means to follow truth. We have a lot of Christians who are Christians in name only. And when you really go read what Jesus said in John chapter 8, where is the truth of that? Now, that's not trying to attack. That's not trying to pick. That's trying to say, listen, let's get to the bottom of it and ask ourselves some really tough, difficult questions. Because the truth is, sometimes you can't separate the believers from the world. He's called us out. We're called to be different. We're called to be separate in how we live, how we work, how we act. Everything is supposed to be different. And therefore, they should see that. So back to verse one: O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you crucified. Clearly portrayed. That's a really interesting word. It really literally means public notice. We would use the term almost like a billboard. This is so big, so obvious, you can't miss it. You can't miss it. It's so clear. The problem is it's so clear, but you, you don't want to follow it you don't want to believe it but you know it it's a really dangerous place to be folks to know the truth then choose not to live the truth think back to Pharaoh think back to all the miracles that he saw and the Bible says that his heart was hardened because he kept seeing think back to what Judas saw for three years amazing and the heart became hard. Sometimes the most dangerous place to be is in church, to know the truth, but not obey it. And this is what Paul is trying to tell the church at Galatia. Guys, be careful. Be careful about what's going on. And then he says, what are we clearly portraying in verse 1? Being crucified. Let's talk about that for a second. This idea of being crucified. Can you go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? This is all that matters is the idea of presenting Christ crucified. Remember what we read in John 8. As a disciple, follower of Christ, you will love God's word, you will hear God's word, you will abide in God's word, you will live it. And what do we live? We portray Christ crucified. That's all that matters. Take a look here at 1 Corinthians 1, starting verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. That just divides everything right there. As a born-again believer in Christ, the message of the cross is your power. To the unbelieving world, it's foolishness. Think about this. You, you can have unsaved friends and loved ones. I mean, you can. And you can be friends with them. Some of the nicest people I've ever met didn't know Christ. Some of the rudest people I've ever met claimed to be a Christian. And so these people that don't know the Lord you look at them and you say, "Man, you're you're such a nice person." Can you just imagine if that nice person got saved and actually had the fruits of the spirit? But the problem is you will reach a wall. You will reach an eventual break in the relationship because verse 18, the most important thing to you is Christ and to them it's foolishness. Think about this just for 1 second. As a believer, think about what you believe. You believe that 2,000... Well, first off, you believe 6,000 years ago God created the heavens and the earth. Right then and there, if you go try to explain that to the world, they're going to laugh you off. 2,000 years ago, you believe that there was this girl named Mary that could have been 13, 14, 15 years old, and that she became pregnant with God's child... And then she had the virgin birth. And then you believe that 33 years later that this man who was also God died on a cross. But then three days later rose and he ascended into heaven. And then now you believe that when he ascended into heaven he sent the Holy Spirit. And that as a believer God himself resides in me. Now go up to the non-believers and say, hey let me tell you a story. There was a girl that got pregnant by God. And he, became, and he had a baby. It's foolishness to them. It's absolutely foolishness. And there's going to come a time in your relationship with them you're going to realize we can become somewhat close, but we can never truly have the relationship that we could have because of this right here. And I always want to remind believers, the relationship with the non-believers, I'm not saying don't talk to them. I'm not saying don't be friends with them. But you got to realize there's going to come a time and a place that relationship can never be as close as it possibly could because of this. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but those who are being saved is the power of God. So what do we do, church? We water it down. So we'll say, well, you know, they're not opposed to God. They're okay if I go to church. They're okay with it. And then we accept okay with it. Oh, that's good then. Man, that's just going to cause issues later on. There is a distinct Line of black and white. We got to remember that. Remember foreigners, sojourners, aliens called out of the world to represent Christ. We are weird. We are different. And that's part of our witnesses that we are different in all we say and do. So what about this idea of the cross? Cross. What about this idea of the cross? See, once again, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Verse 23, same chapter. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. See, that's generally what happens when you go present Christ to people. For some people, it makes them stumble in a good way. Their whole world has changed. Wait a second, there's an eternity, there's a heaven, there's a hell. I have to make a decision. It makes them stumble. Or maybe they were raised in a church and they stopped and said, well, wait a second. There's more to just this than just going to church and jumping through these religious hoops? You mean there's a real relationship here? To some, it's just foolishness. They don't care. They push it off to the side. They don't even want anything to do with it. The extreme is John 8. They're going to kill you. They're going to hate you for presenting truth. What else does he say here? So Paul comes to this conclusion. Chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, I've come to this conclusion then. I got one string on my guitar, and that's Christ died for your sins. And I'm just going to keep playing that same song again and again and again. That's what it is. We got to remember, in this world we live in, the enemy will do whatever he can to deter you from being in the word, being in, in church, being with other believers. He would do everything he can So, what he tries to do a lot of the times is to deter deter us with stuff that we would not consider bad. And then all of a sudden, all my time and energy goes into what? Me. Making self comfortable. Fulfilling what I want to fulfill. Where Paul says, No, 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 no. I determined to know anything, nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the only thing I want to tell you. Now, I have mentioned this example many times before, and so bears repeating. There are certain things in life that are just wrong. You can't make a case for anything good coming out of it. They're just wrong, so they'll put those down there. There are certain things in life that are good. It's good to be amongst believers. It's good to preach the gospel. It's good to be in prayer and be in the word. So those are there. The majority of your life is in this big neutral section that is neither bad nor good. But you choose what to take out of that. So therefore, in this big neutral section, And I've used these examples before. Your drive to work is very neutral. Okay, you can listen to praise worship. You can listen to a message you could pray. You took something neutral and made it good. My boys say, hey, Dad, can we go back to the creek? Let's go back to the creek. As we walk back to the creek, that's very neutral. We could talk about creation. We could talk about the different things. Isn't God's creation beautiful? I took something neutral and made it good. You determine what you're going to do with that. So when you get up in the morning, you have to remind yourself, you are a bondservant of the Lord. The day is not yours. James makes it clear, you are a vapor. Now if you want to quote that verse when you call into work, more power to you. I don't know how that will go over. Some of the things you do need to do is provide for your family, to provide resources for yourself. Paul says if you don't work, you don't eat. Okay, so I need to go to work. Now that's a very neutral thing. What am I going to do at work? What am I going to do? Am I going to represent the Lord? Am I going to jump into the world and complain? I had a guy one time tell me that he's got his church lingo and he's got his work lingo. And when he goes to work, I remember him telling me, you got to talk like them. If you don't talk like them, they won't respect you or whatever. It's like, oh, man, come on. God-pleaser or man-pleaser. Going in there and being different. There's so many things you do in life that you have to stop and say, what am I going to do with this information? I had a situation that, you know, just popped up, uh, you know, recently. Um, my wife and I are very blessed for the next couple of weeks. We've got three little girls living with us, and we just got the girls on Friday. Five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a, a five-month-old. So we got them on Friday. Now, it was been planned for months that we were supposed to go down to Columbus on Saturday for uh, my niece graduated from high school. So it's like, that sounds, oh, we're going to get the girls Friday. Oh, we're going to go to Columbus Saturday. And then the reality sets in, oh, we get the girls Friday. We're going to go down to Columbus on Saturday. <laughs> what? What's going on here? And so what happens is, that's a very neutral thing. Now, what am I going to do with that? You know, on the way down, what are we going to do? And so the whole time I kept saying this, and, and this is what I started praying about and thinking about. It's like, okay, Lord, on paper, this really doesn't make any sense. It really doesn't. So, Lord, if that means on paper it doesn't make any sense, and I still feel you want us to do this, that means you've got something in store, and I can't wait to see what it is. And so you go with this expectation of, I'm just excited, Lord. I'm along for the ride. What are you going to do? And, and you know, and just, Lord, what is it? And so, you know, we're going to the park, and they had this beautiful park there, and, and, and Dawn had the baby. And so I had the seven kids, and I'm trying to keep track of them seven. And and it reached a point where I couldn't keep track of them. And I said, Lord, they're in your hands. I decided I'm done. So um, they're in the Lord's hands. And it was hot. I was like, I don't want to stand out in the sun and watch these kids. So I'm going to go find some shade. And there was this one spot of shade. And there was another woman there. And so I, I thought, okay, here we go, Lord. Is this it? Is this it? Is this why you sent me down? And so I go, and I stand beside her. And I said, oh, you found some shade? She goes, yeah, it was hard to find. I said, uh, God made a hot one today, didn't, she? didn't he? And she goes, yeah. And she, was, she had red hair, very pale, complected. She goes, yeah, this is, not, this is not good for me and my complexion. And I looked at her, and I don't even know why I said this. I said, you are a unique creation of God, and that's the way the Lord wanted to create you? And then she walked away. But... Um, <laughs> So I don't know if that's the only reason I went down there was to tell the pale redhead you are a unique creation of God. She probably went and called the cops. I don't know. But there's so many things that we do in life that we look at it as a have to. We look at it as why. And what I want you to stop, and I want you to really do this right now. Do you have to do it? You've been set free. Let's put all this message together. You have been set free. We just read that in John 8. One of the things you've been set free from Is the expectations of the world You're not, you're not a man pleaser You're a God pleaser What would happen if you really stop and say I'm just going to do the things That the Lord says I'm supposed to do I mean you've had the conversations with your spouse Why are we going I don't know why we're going We were invited we have to What? What do you tell your kids Mom why are we doing this Because you have to Do we really have to Well yeah we have to Why? Well because that's just what we do That's what a good neighbor does. I think Jesus did a whole parable on what a good neighbor does. Well, this is just what we do as productive members of society. I'm not a productive member of society. I'm a foreigner, stranger, alien. So what am I supposed to do? What does this look like? Can you go with me to 2 Corinthians, please? Chapter 5. This is our last point here. If I really believe everything I'm teaching and preaching... That there is truth, and there's a gospel, and there's a heaven, and there's a hell, and there's a God that loves me, and it's foolish for me to not abide in his word. It's foolish for me to know the truth and not walk in it. That should change how I live and act. To know that I'm so loved. Think about this. God cannot love you more than what he loves you right now. He can't. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. So therefore, let this sink in. Since there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, have you ever stopped and realized there's nothing you have to do? You don't have to come to church. You don't have to pray. You don't have to share Christ. You don't have to read your Bible. Now, some of you are saying, amen. (laughs) You don't have to. Do you think by showing up here this morning that God loves you more? Do you think if you go home today and you go outside to read for the next eight hours that God says, I owe you, you're going to have a good Monday? There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. So then why do we do this? If you don't have to, why do you do it? Because you want to. Because God's word abides in you and you realize, I want things to be different. You'd say, the way I respond to that love is, I want things to be different. What does that look like from a biblical standpoint? Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 13. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are a sound mind, it's for you. Basically, verse 13, if I'm crazy, it's because I'm for Christ. And if I really want to live the life, I'm going to be crazy to the world. I really am. Do you ever realize that when you finally run into another believer that really gets it, you're like, finally somebody who seems normal. But to the world, it's just that different. I, I, I can't let go of this thought. To really live the life the way the Bible says, it is going to be so Weird to the world. And I think we try so hard as believers. To make sure I got one foot in heaven. But yet I'm not too weird down here. Man people. It's going to be different. So if I'm going to be weird. It's weird for the Lord. Because look at verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus. That if one died for all. Then all died. And he died for all. Look at verse 15. That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Quit living for yourselves. Die, deny, and disappear. You will never be able to fulfill that. Go read the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a never-ending process of trying to make yourself happy and fulfilled. Die, deny, and disappear. And verse 14, For the love of Christ compels us. Compels us. That's a strong word in the Greek. It almost means forces you. Well, wait a second. You just said, I don't have to. And now you're telling me here's this Greek word that means force, control, compels? Let me just give you a quick story, and I've used this example before. When we did some of those Muslim outreaches up in Toledo, we were talking to the one of the imams at the mosque, and they were talking about all the different things that they, they do, and they kept using the word obligatory. You know, we have prayer so many times a day, it's obligatory. This is the way we pray, it's obligatory, this is what we do, it's obligatory. And I remember talking to them afterwards and asking them, if it's obligatory, you have to, how do you balance in your mind that you're doing this out of love then? And he was honest, and he was really surprised. He goes, sometimes I struggle with that. That I have to, it's not out of love. See, what this verse is saying is, look at this, what compels you, verse 14, The love of Christ. It's not fear of hell. It's not God's not going to bless me. It is I stop and I realize everything Jesus did for me. And man, the only natural reaction to that supernatural love is to say, Lord, I got to do this. I I don't feel like I have to. I, I got to. I mean, I just want to read more because look at what you've done. I want to go tell people more. I want to go serve more. I'm going to go open up my home. I'm going to go do this because just this is what you've done. And then somebody comes and says, oh, that's legalistic. You have to. No, you don't get it. I don't have to. But I really want to. I really want things to be different. So you can go home today. And next Sunday, none of you may show up. The pastor said, I don't have to go. You're right. You don't have to. You may go home and say, isn't it great? I don't have to read my Bible this week. I was up to the genealogies and chronicles. I can skip all that. Your neighbor comes over. I don't have to share Christ with them. No, you don't. But I'm going to tell you right now, the verse that you're going to hear all week is verse 14. The love of Christ compels you. Jesus, you've done so much for me. Why would I not want to? And just please remind yourself one more time of verse 15. That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That's the body of Christ we're trying to be. That's the individuals I want you to be, as you no longer live for yourself. Because when you live for yourself, you spend all your time, energy, whatever, making yourself comfortable, when really it's about representing the Lord in all that we do and all that we say. Worship team, if you can come forward here. Hey, let's pray this into our lives.